Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today's episode is a fascinating exploration on what it takes to be a filmmaker. My guest is the supremely talented Lian Kay, a Chinese-American filmmaker whose work ethic is inspirational. Throughout her career, she's worked as the video director for the Global Citizens Festival, working with artists like Beyonce, Jay-Z, Coldplay, and Metallica. She's also directed an incredible slew of music videos, most notably with her sister Charlene Kay, who was a guest back in season one. A big factor of what makes Leanne's work stand out is how she conveys humanity at a near-tangible level. The best example of this is within her award-winning short, The Blessing, a semi-autobiographical telling of when Leanne's fiancé wanted to propose and had to gain the approval of her traditional mother. The Blessing won Best Comedy at the New York Short Film Festival, which isn't surprising when you see how beautifully the film tackles the quirks of conveying a story that many can relate to. On today's episode, I chat with Leanne about the start of her career along with how she's learned to express herself through directing and why diversity is more than just a buzzword. This is The New Exchange with Leanne Kay. Enjoy. So Leanne, I'm so excited to be chatting with you. There's naturally going to be an intro to this, but I just wanted to first say that I love your work and that you're work ethic is particularly badass, so. Oh, thank you for having me on here. Yeah. Reaching out. I love listening to podcasts, so it's fun to be on one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course. So tell me, when you think back on your childhood, what do you think it was about filmmaking that excited you? My childhood. I think that what was nice about growing up for people of our age and older was that there wasn't a ton of technology at the time. So I feel like me and my sister would you know, play in the backyard with just like me and her and our imaginations. So we would, you know, do a lot of storytelling that way, with just like two kids, a bunch of trees and in grass. And I felt like that helped us really be creative, making, you know, something out of nothing, playing dress up with costumes, like telling a lot of stories that way. And then I think by the time we had gotten a camcorder, um, our parents like really it's funny because um, for Asian parents, they want you to succeed in ways that they think are traditional. Um, <laughs> but they also, you know, gave us a lot of tools, uh, you know, such as instruments and little gadgets and encouraged creativity throughout our childhood. So, yeah, I think both of us were just natural storytellers t- and creators in that way. And I think that shows a lot in your work because, I mean, I'm actually going to ask you about a lot of your projects, but I think what kind of shines through as a through line in your work is a sense of humanity. Like your work tends to always feel very human regardless of what the context is. And- Oh, thank you. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, I'm sure that you devoured films as a kid, but do you feel that there was like one film in particular that really left an impact on you and made you think like, God, this is the thing I want to do? Um, as a kid, I feel like I grew up like watching a bunch of like Disney movies. My mom was really, big on musicals so uh definitely like Grease and Singing in the Rain and Flower Drum Song but I I do feel like by the time I got to college the film that made the hugest impact was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind 
which was directed by Michel Gondry. And he started out as a music video director um, and did a lot of stuff for the White Stripes and Bjork. Uh, and I should actually back up and say, I think I got most of my inspiration for filmmaking from music video directors and watching music videos because um, my sister was a musician and I felt like it was a short form piece of content that I could wrap my brain around at the time. So Spike Jones also who started out directing music videos really inspired me. And I actually ended up taking a, a music video class where I got to watch a lot of directors who later moved into narrative, but started out with just really, you know, zany concepts that didn't necessarily have to make sense in the real world, just as interesting visuals as they could. And starting from the place of a song, which, you know, being really into music too, that worked really well for me. And I never really saw myself being a musician like my sister. And so this felt like a good counterpart in being able to contribute to the music scene. You know, that makes so much sense to me, because when you think about like the 80s onwards, like the advent of like music videos evolving, it's mm -hmm. actually so wild to think how as time went on, music videos became more complex. But in innately, they would have to find a directors would have to find a way to tell these like, big and sometimes, you know, very like specific type of stories in such a short amount of time. And some might argue that's even harder to do than a feature in the context of you have to hit so many points to make the work resonate with people. Yeah, definitely. I've always looked at it as, as training in storytelling without dialogue, because um, all of the dialogue or the words are usually like in the musician's song, but it's not necessarily a narrative sort of structure. And so building a story around that, you have to tell that all visually. And so I felt like that was good training going into narrative filmmaking. And then also, like, I've always really loved how inventive music video directors have been with their narrative films. I think that Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones have done such interesting, they've created such interesting worlds with the films they eventually started making. Michelle Gondry was so good with production design and getting very abstract. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Eternal Sunshine, but there's a scene where uh, Jim Carrey's memory is disappearing and he's chasing the memory just under this blanket with a spotlight, with a flashlight. And it's such a good metaphor for Kate Winslet disappearing. And I think the way that he was able to come up with that was so cool. And same with Spike Jones, he did, I mean, so many. Being, being John Malkovich, adaptation, and all of this just really weird visual components that were not naturalistic at all. And I think that's kind of the movies I've been really attracted to. Yeah, uh, to answer your question, I have seen Eternal Su uh, Sunshine, and that's one of those films I like to classify as like uh, a film I could probably watch once or twice a year, because obviously <laughs> it's such an incredible film, but it's just such a gut punch when you watch it. After every breakup is the time <laughs> to watch Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> um, I saw this video that you put up on Vimeo where you mentioned how, I think it was kind of like an intro video to like you and your work, and I remember you mentioned how being in high school in Scottsdale, Arizona was formative for you in regards to wanting to do sketches and different projects. I'd love to hear about how growing up there influenced you because when I, it's actually funny, when I was a teenager, we used to go to like Mesa, Arizona quite a bit. We had like family friends there. And for people <laughs> listening who have a bit to Arizona, it really is like one of those places where you kind of have to, like you have to make your imagination entertain you. Is, is that kind of mm -hmm. how it was for you growing up? There must have been 
learned something about it that I feel like I'm even still exploring now as a 32-year-old woman um, because I I did start writing about my childhood, my coming-of-age moments in Arizona, and I, I guess, like, realizing how unique that was um, and how, you know, we probably haven't seen enough movies or TV shows that are set in different parts of the country because so much is filmed in New York and LA and Arizona. Yeah. It does like have such a specific landscape. It has a specific way of living. Like it was so hot that, uh, there are, there are like details that I got to include about how if people sit outside, there are these like sprinklers that will sprinkle on you 24 <laughs> seven to, to cool you off. And when you get in the car, like you, uh, if you're wearing shorts or something, the, the leather is just like burning and you have to like either put a towel down or you can't keep water bottles in the car because they'll melt. And so, yeah, there must have been maybe something about finding creativity. There must have been a lot of joy. Like there was always, always a lot of sunshine and not a lot of weather. And then for my like particular experience, I think being uh, a minority at my high school, I think forced me to want to use my to really like dig into my personality and be you know find out (laughs) what made me interesting uh as a way to like I don't know as a way to like find out who I was in high school because I was so different anyway (laughs) so I don't know if that answers your question I mean if we if we do get into like what happened in high school uh basically I ran for student government when actually in middle school, when I was in seventh grade, and I was not popular, like nobody, I had, you know, like a couple friends, I was very quiet, I was very shy, but I felt like I just knew that I could win the election if my ideas were just quirky and attention-grabbing enough, and it was something about the posters, it was something about, like, you would do these handouts, you would give people, like, things to wear, or, like, candy to eat and stuff, and, like, I, I felt like the intelligence of running a campaign and winning was something something about like how I found my personality and creativity through that and then as I got older into high school like I was always the treasurer uh and because that's not racist at all but I was <laughs> like, the treasurer role. and I you know had a lot of friends in student government and I noticed this trend where um a lot of times there would be a really hard working woman that would you know be freshman class president sophomore class, junior class, and then senior year, some jock would run against her, no experience, just like, oh, you're for student body president. And <laughs> he'd just like, get up there, give a funny, like craft a couple jokes and everybody would be like, yeah, and he'd win. And she'd just get, you know, moved to the sidelines. And I just realized how unfair that was. At the same time, I realized that I could help these guys win. Um, And so people would like come to me when they wanted to run for student government and they'd be like, can you help me with my campaign? And I would make their campaign video and, you know, just like put a lot of funny music in it, like do some jokes and uh, whoever had the best video usually won, no matter how like popular they were with the students or how good they were for the job. None of that mattered as long as you had like a blitz marketing campaign. And so (laughs) that is kind of when I got interested in video because as a behind the scenes type of person, I was like, oh, I can express my personality through creating these commercials for people, you know, creating their personalities like behind the scenes, which eventually like 
has turned into a movie that I'm writing that is pretty much about a girl that's the campaign manager for these these guys in high school. While you were talking, I just found myself thinking about how much I love knowing that there's people listening from like Europe and like Australia and like, you know, different places in the world. And I imagine their perspective of our politics, you know, of the last couple of years, <laughs> they listened to you talking and they were just like, oh, wow, it starts that young, huh? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, it's not like Hillary and Trump at all. Or <laughs> even uh, Leslie Nopin. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was that guy? Bobby. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm breaking. We love Parks and Rec, though, people. Trust us. We love Parks and Rec. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love how you ended that, though, because for me, like, I'm a photographer as, you know, as well as doing this. And one of the most surprising things I found with getting into photography was that it helped me express myself. Like, I grew up, like, mm. r- really shy. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think similar to you in some capacity, like my parents are immigrants growing up in like a lot of small towns and like, you know, outside of cities, I was always like an outsider, even if I didn't want to admit it at times. So I grew up like really shy, really kind of, you know, trying to figure things out. And yeah, it was through photography, I learned that I could express myself to the world, especially at a time where, you know, just the mere idea of that was something that I couldn't even wrap my head around. So that realization yeah. was like very unexpected to me. And I wonder, you know, going beyond those experiences you had in high school, when you consider when you got to directing like on sets, I wonder if you've experienced that in that capacity, like being able to express yourself through your work. I mean, absolutely. If anything, I feel like the first step to that was writing, which was a really new experience for me because I had started out directing music videos. And so I would take somebody else's song and I would create a visual to it and it always seemed like an even partnership or even like this is their creative expression this is their soul they're bearing and then I'm piggybacking on top of it and you know supporting them and making it the best making them look as good as I can and then when I started writing and I made my first short film and I found myself in the position of spending all this money And just like, you know, raking myself over the coals to make this product. Uh, It was the first time I'd ever felt like, oh my God, this is just on me. Like all of this creative expression is is mine. And I really felt like what, right? I felt that feeling that a lot of artists do of like, why are you doing this? And (laughs) why are you pouring all of your resources into this? And what right do you have to put this out into the world? And what if no one cares? And I actually had to go to my sister and be like, how do you make an album? Like, how do you like write all of these songs that do mean something to you, but then let everybody else hear it and then tell everybody I spent all of my money on this. And like, it it seemed like it was, it was a little bit of a, a crisis, but then I ended up reading these two books, Big Magic and The Artist's Way that kind of comforted me in the sense that they were like, all artists feel like a fraud because at the end of the day, art kind of is useless in a capitalist society because, you know, it doesn't feed you. It doesn't give you money. It doesn't give you shelter. Like you don't really need it to survive. And yet we do need it to survive. I guess to answer your question, it was really, it was such a experience of growth. I think creating something that came out of my own experiences and myself, and it felt very vulnerable and scary in a way I didn't expect because I, I always used to be like, I'm an artist, like I'm a creative, but this felt a lot more raw telling narrative stories as opposed to 
collaborative music video projects. I think that's something that's so wild about just the idea of that role that you have as a director, because I think so many people, you know, who don't have a point of reference for what it's actually like to be a director and what that entails. Mm -hmm. There's so many like different ideas and, you know, different shades that might, Mm -hmm. you know, correlate to one another. And I've been fortunate to be around different directors, music video directors, like short films and commercials and films and stuff like that. And like, I, I think what a lot of people don't get is that there's so much more the job entails and just what happens with a camera. Like, what do you think would surprise people the most about what you do? I think Olivia Wilde put this really well in Booksmart. And she said, like, the director is the coach and you hire the best team and you encourage them and give them guidance and tell them, you know, like, we're all going to do this together. And you're supposed to have expertise in storytelling, acting, uh, cinematography, lighting, but you're also not the expert on it. And you're not the MVP of the project. You are in the sense that you're overseeing and guiding everybody in your vision. But, you know, without my DP, I would not be able to make the project. And if anything, I think people... I think directors might suffer more if they're like, I know more about camera than the person you hired to like operate and set the camera, do the lighting, decide on the camera moves. And I think the most success that I've had was actually giving my DP, Connie, who's fantastic, um, a lot of freedom of like, what do you think that this should look like? And then make it collaborative. You know, she gives me ideas. I, I give them back. Like I'll put my foot down if like something's, wrong or really saw it like a different way but I think just being open and I think that's the same for actors I think that you have to trust that they are the expert in their craft you have to have taste and you have to have the uh, ability to hire good ones but I really believe that once you do you can't micromanage them and tell them how to act and tell them you know how like it is a very fine tightrope of like, this is how I want it to be, but also being open to the experience of you might come up with something else. And if it's working, then I got to leave it alone rather than come in and like hammer them. And so I think directing is overseeing a bunch of different disciplines, which is what I love because you get to work with so many different artists with different skills and expertise. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think also what's really beautiful about what you do and just the very nature of like being on a set is that like it's so much hard work to, you know, craft a story and to be part of a team and like, you know, all these moving parts. And for a lot of people, it takes so much to even get to the point to be on a set that, Mm -hmm. you know, it might sound like I'm generalizing saying this, but for the most part, in contrast to a lot of other jobs, you usually come across people on sets who just genuinely want to be there and exhume that as much as they can, which could be really Mm -hmm. infectious. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, surprised every day by, I guess, the joy people bring to their work because I think one of the beautiful things about film is that people do find what they love doing and what they love doing is not necessarily what you love doing. And sometimes I'll look at a grip or a gaffer in awe and be like can't I'm so glad that you love your job because I would never want to do your job but I'm so happy that you love doing your job so that we can work together on this and and same there are people that will be like I never want to direct because like being in charge and having to make all of those little decisions and having everybody looking at you all the time 
is my nightmare, which I, which I get it. It is not for everybody, but when it is for you, it, it can feel like magic. And I mean, that'll go for producing, like it's so many logistics and, you know, I'm still an indie film director. So it, if, and when I graduate to the place where I don't have to think about logistics at all, I can't even imagine uh, how freeing that would be because, <laughs> you know, right now it's baked into really having to do a lot of the dirty work, the logistics, the emails, the, you know, even though I hired a producer this time around, which was such a big weight off my shoulders. And now I don't think I can ever go back. Um, it still is like my like money fronting the project. So you still like have to have an eye on everything. And yeah, someday if like a big movie studio gives me a lot of money and being like, don't worry about the budget, he'll take care of it. <laughs> like that sounds like a dream. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, earlier I mentioned like how your work tends to have like a very human quality to it. And I think what I meant by that is that I feel like when I watch your stuff, there's like this framing that you do that almost makes people feel tangible and the emotions are always conveyed in such a clear way. And I wonder how important that is for you because naturally, you know, everyone wants to have a style. Everyone wants to have a way they approach their work. And I think eventually it, t it tends to be something that's almost subconscious. But when I watch your stuff, I feel like that's the thing that stands out the most. And I just wondered if that's something you found to be very important. I think that this is why we create art is to be able to express or like exercise our emotions so that we're not in pain anymore. It's like, you know, letting them go or putting them into something else so that you can move on from like sitting in it. I have to give credit to both my editor and DP this time around because they come from like the Spielberg camp train of thought. Like my editor, Kevin, is an assistant editor on Spielberg stuff and Connie is an assistant camera on Spielberg stuff. Both of them I was lucky enough that they wanted to graduate and upgrade to being the main editor and the cinematographer. They're tired of assistant work. And <laughs> I was like, yes, please come this way <laughs> and do it for me. But they really come from that school of thought of moving the camera and cutting the camera with intention and emotion. So you don't just like move it willy nilly. Like it has to come from a reason of why and if it's moving forward is it because you know it's getting more intense and if it's moving backwards are you you know uh are you pulling away and so I think that is kind of the magic of film like pretending to be somebody else's eyes or like letting someone step into somebody's eyes I mean that that shows so much and the project you're talking about of course is um the blessing it won the best comedic short at the New York Film Festival congratulations <laughs> on it that's incredible thank you <laughs> yeah. Um, and God, I mean, this story is a deeply personal one and is inspired by your Italian-American boyfriend's relationship with your Chinese mm -hmm. immigrant mother. Um, Beyonce now, actually. Beyonce, <laughs> so correct. <it's> <laughs> correct. Yeah, it's super real. Um, Thank you. <laughs> what, what did it mean for you to both write this story and craft it into an actual film? Because, I mean, for me, as someone who just has like, you know, an interest in like film and TV and things like that, it's it's kind of like a very heavy thing to just imagine, to have something that means so much mm -hmm. to you and then exercising it to the world. Yeah, I mean, it was really terrifying, actually. Because um, at the time, we weren't engaged, but, you know, felt like it, you know, it was going to happen, <laughs> but we weren't there yet. And uh, the short kind of just came from more of just like, oh, it's such a funny relationship between him and my mom. He's like, you know, a tall Italian guy. She's a tiny little Asian woman. And like the physicality of their height difference 
and the way that they move, like my mom is extremely athletic and she's very bossy. And even though she's smaller than everyone, she just like bosses everybody around. And then he is very kind and patient and, and gentle and their interactions. I was like, this would just make a really funny uh, visual and thus like a short would be fun. And then somehow it came about like, you know, like the stakes would be higher if he wanted to propose and then he wants something from her and then we can like, you know, move forward making a film about that. So I made the film, it was great. Like I was really proud of it and it was a nice standalone piece. Um, but then I used that to apply for a grant through the NYC Women's Fund and serializing the story really took it to uh, like the farthest emotional point that I didn't even really expect like how deeply I would go. And there, I, I mentioned the artist's way, which is this like workbook for artists that like have writer's block or just like wanna, aren't really being creative and wanna like get back into doing it. And one of the like exercises that they have you do is just like wake up and write um, stream of conscious three pages every day. Wow. And that practice was actually incredible because it, it gets so much stuff that you don't even know that you're thinking like out onto the page and it prevents you from editing yourself because screenplay editing is very technical and you know it's like you know the name in the middle of the page and then you have to format and you have to do the action and if you get into that then you'll stop being able to think about story and the overarching uh narrative of the whole thing so when I was doing the stream of conscious stuff just like a lot of <laughs> my personal baggage came out like <laughs> each episode is about uh one of my family members it's like he goes to the mom that's the that's the pilot and then he visits the aunties the dad the grandma the stepdad and the sister and some of the stuff you know it's not all happy-go-lucky like my parents had they've had a divorce that was not you know very I don't know how to describe my parents' divorce. It was like they were friends and then they, you know, went through a lot of periods of, of strife that was like tough for the whole family. And all of that just ended up coming out to the point where I'm so proud of the product, but it, it is it is scary. Like when you're writing about your life and you're like, this is my experience, but it will and might affect other people. On top of that, just my fiance, like writing for him, like through him. Um, when he first read it, he was like, is this what you think of me and I was like <laughs> no like actually your character's me like I'm the one going around to my whole family and asking them questions and having having the hard conversations with them and you know like there's a bit of you in it but a lot of the way that this character speaks and thinks I think comes much more out of me than him so it's a weird it's a weird thing it's a weird process of creating something that like starts in truth and then you know, just evolves into something. I finally understand, you know, when they talk to celebrities and they're like, is this about your life? Like marriage story or something? And it's like, I can completely see how it's like, it is, but it's not. Like it, you know, it evolved pretty far away from my life, but there is some like truth based in it. I think just from like a human level too, like there's almost like this innate aspect of needing to also have a degree of separation maybe as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Actually, something that I love that Elizabeth Gilbert said, uh, I mean, this is a little woo-woo, but she has this theory that ideas, like, actually don't come from us. They're actually, like, floating out. I mean, this sounds kind of woo but they're, you know, they're, like, in the universe, and that humans are vessels that, if you're open, 
they will be like manifested through you so that the idea is there. And if you're ready to work and, and take it, then you can bring it to life. You can make it into something, but it's not necessarily like it came out of your brain totally. You're like collaborating with creativity. <laughs> so yeah. I liked that idea because I think when I did show my fiance this and he was like, how did it turn into this? I was like, I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like it was just like what the idea wanted to be. And I had a hand in writing it, but uh, I think it at once felt like I worked on it painstakingly. And then it was also a fever dream that just like came out of me and I don't even know how it happened. So <laughs> it's always both somehow. The way you described that made a lot of sense to me. I really love, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really love um, No Gallagher of Oasis. And um, he just, he has something similar. He describes it as um, if you're a songwriter, it's essentially you have to go fish and the great songs mm. are in a pond and it's dependent on you to put the work in to get it out, but it's not exactly fully from you. So it yeah. kind of harkens to what you just described. I love that. I, I've also heard Tom Waits would be like, he'd like talk to his songs as if they were just like in the room. And he'd be like, all right, motherfuckers, <laughs> like you're getting on the wagon or you're not. And if you're not, then the wagon's <laughs> leaving without you. <laughs> That's the most Tom Waits thing of all time, I think. <laughs> Would you say, is it easier to direct actors when it comes from depicting events inspired by real life? Like even your, especially your own life, or is it even more difficult to do that? Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the honest truth is that apart from this series that I'm doing, or like, actually, I would say apart from any of my own work, which I'm a writer director, I don't, I haven't done much that wasn't inspired for my own life besides music videos where you're directing musicians. But I do believe that musicians uh, are naturally very good actors because they are able to access emotions within themselves from the past and bring it up every time they write a song or perform a song. Like they're performers anyway, so they can, you know, they can bring out what they need to when we're doing music videos. And so I would say that my process and I'm still learning like it's all a learning process but I think it's really trusting the talent like I think a lot of the work happens in the casting when you're having them read lines and seeing if they you know are giving you what you feel the scene needs and then are really like coming from a place of truth and then once you find that person in my experience often uh, like I said, you don't have to like tailor them so much because they get it. Like actors, you know, themselves are autonomous <laughs> people that are also artists that want to do a lot of research and understand the project and understand the background and like, you know, get the circumstances into their head so that they, they can be that character. They can be, you know, a combination of the character you wrote and themselves. And so I feel like every actor I've worked with has just been a star. If anything, I guess the hardest part for me was doing the, we did a bunch, we did a scene with a bunch of Asian aunties and that was like <laughs> mostly comedic, but I really didn't want them to be, uh, you know, tropes or like stereotypes. And I felt like that was a lot about finding people that could bring themselves to the character too. Because one school of thought might be like, you know, this actor's such a chameleon, they could be anybody. But in order for these aunties to be really distinct, um, 
I, I kind of liked how they were and how they said the lines and how, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to create or mold them. I think you had to find them. And in that way, maybe it's kind of like ideas or songs or stories. It's like you have to find people that are already out there. And, you know, with that, I mean, just what you described at the end there, I feel like it really resonates with me and what I took away from watching it because you know, you always hear people talk about representation, like why it matters, whether or not it matters, even like some people debate that. And I think mm-hmm. what you created with The Blessing is that it proves that when you have a personal association with a story, there are little nuances and like tonal shifts and just an overall presentation that you can, you know, cultivate that you can't unless you do have an association with it. Like, I feel like it's the best example of how, you know, you can represent a culture. And it, it's just done the right way. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the Atlanta attacks and like why they happened and why they were so devastating to the Asian community everywhere. And I, I think a lot of it is because of the stereotypes that people have about Asian women spa workers. <laughs> and I think that's like, even more so why I'm dying to like get this out into the world and then to keep, you know, writing Asian characters because I think people need to see, you know, more three-dimensional humans as, as all minorities feel <laughs> we would like to be seen that way. It really made me see how damaging that particular stereotype was in the way that the media and even friends reacted to those attacks. And yeah, I mean, we're recording this at the town of March and it's still pretty fresh. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Dave Chang, the chef. He has a podcast also. And he mentioned in the wake of the attacks that one of the things that leads to these things happening, it very much uh, harkens to what you just said, is like how a lot of Asian Americans feel like they don't have a place that they belong in the context of just this American melting pot and experiment where in terms of like culture in the media, there's so many tropes, there's so many like bullshit depictions of like Asian Americans that you're right, people find a way not to see Asian Americans as three dimensional. And that's just so damning. Like it's just, it shouldn't be what it is. That's why people die. Like that's why people are killing people because they don't see them as humans. And it's, it's horrible. And it, it does seem like a direct reflection or at least like, you know, from where I'm standing and what I do, like, I think that being in media, creating art, like, being a storyteller, like, we just need to, well, we've been working hard, but we need to work harder to, you know, get our stories out there, and society needs to be more open to accepting us and letting us have that voice. Exactly, and, you know, with that, it made me think about, like, how I remember how reading about how you became a mentee to Sofia Alvarez. Um, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. the writer and the executive producer of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is weirdly a series I love. I say weirdly oh. because I feel like I'm not the target demographic at all. But for, <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, that series of films, I was like, really uh, touched me quite a bit. And, and I think a lot of people felt that way, which is really great that... I don't know, at one point, I think it was like the most streamed film on Netflix. And yeah. why? Maybe because it was a universal story at the end of the day. Uh, have you seen Minari? Well, I just Minari? did like uh, two weeks ago. And my God, like I love Stephen Yen from... Um, Ugh, yeah. And 
it's it's actually really wild that seeing where how he acted in that film it really made me realize that i've like seen him act you know from the start like up until now and just seeing what he's grown into is just mind-blowing man yeah and i mean similarly that american story about that family those parents those kids like it is so universal and you know i felt his struggles of I want to be a man, take care of my family and, and have dignity to be something that anybody could relate to, whether you're Asian or not. And that felt really life affirming to see that on the big screen and then see it be, you know, validated for all the awards and praise that it deserves. Yeah, it really does. It's such an intimate film, but it really does. Yeah, it's like, it's just like you said, it's so relatable on so many levels. Like, there's no like litmus test to understand the struggles and the the character interactions, like it really hits you home when you watch it. You said your parents are immigrants as well, right? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, Haitian and French immigrants. Uh, they came here in the late 70s. And it's actually quite a wild thing with them where they both, I mean, I guess this is really interesting. They both had two different schools of thought in regards to assimilating where my mom felt it was more crucial in terms of like navigating like um, education because she wanted to expand our education and uh, professional mm-hmm. settings. And my dad did see the importance of assimilating in the context of professionalism, but he was more staunchly against it. To this day, my dad isn't a citizen despite being here for over like three decades. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, and in a way, I feel like, or how old were your parents when they came over? My that so that's really funny. My mom was in her mid twenties, but my dad was I want to say eighteen or nineteen. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah, I mean, even watching the parents of Minari being like maybe thirty or late twenties, it's like that's so young to come over to this country, not know anybody, like you know, be yeah. okay at the language, and try to start a farm, like <laughs> yeah. try to like have a business, try to like survive with kids, like. I can't imagine, um, even though it's a, the most common story there is in America, probably. Like, we are the majority now of immigrants that have come over here. It's really strange. And it's, it's exactly that. And also, it's like, even in the context of Minari, like, even though he had, you know, townspeople who were kind to him and his family, that I feel like what that film did a great job of depicting, and it made me even think about my parents' experience, is that mm-hmm. on some level, to succeed in America, like, as even though you can get help from people, there is this element of you having to do it yourself, depending, you know, what the context is. And mm-hmm. I thought that film encapsulated that in a really, like, poignant way. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I think, what we all hope to do, you know? Like, if a film makes you think about yourself and your own experiences, like, reflected back to you, that's, like, that's winning. No, it totally is. Um, I wanted to ask in regards to, you know, becoming a mentee to Sophia, um, I mean, God, what did you learn from her? Because I imagine there's just so, she's just a wealth of information. Yeah, she was just so cool. Um, I'm not even sure how old she is, but she seemed like she could have just been like one of my girlfriends. And uh, she just finished uh, the second to all the boys. And I remember when I sat down, I was like, oh my God, I love John Ambrose. Like, I love him. Or I was like, I'm team John Ambrose. And she and she was like, I'm team John Ambrose too. Oh or she was no. Like, actually, like, don't. Or she was like, no, I'm too Peter. Uh, you know, like, I, I do feel like the characters that she wrote are different um, from the books. And so she was great. Um, I mean, it's so flattering when 
anybody reads your screenplay and you know the the screenplay I wrote was a coming of age Asian American uh thing too so she just helped with dialogue plot like told me about the characters like asked me questions that like I hadn't thought about before and kind of just told me her journey too about being a writer which is a lot different than I think a lot of people think as well uh because she is a playwright and a tv writer and she would say that her playwriting is what she really sees as her art and like tv often can get bogged down with like industry things um but it's also like very collaborative so you you do it in a writer's room and in order to a get jobs or even like get your idea through the door a lot of it is pitching so you have to like you know stand up in front of people and be like so there's this guy and blah 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 (laughs) you have to like you know talk to the producers which most writers uh I want to think are introverts that are like I have to talk to people and so a lot of the um I did it through this uh organization called the Athena Film Festival and they had an Athena lab and it was like eight women screenwriters and so they were mentoring us and just like you know if you want to be a writer then this is how it's done. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest lesson from that was like writing is writing. A lot of being a writer is writing, but then a lot of being a writer is also pitching, meaning you got to stand up for your ideas. You have to maybe act a little bit. You have to, you know, say the line in the character's voice and be pretty collaborative with it, which is scary, but good to know, (laughs) I would say. Yeah, there's so many like layers to it. And, you know, I mentioned before how um, I'm a photographer and I used to tour around musicians quite a bit, like, you know, when the world was open. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I remember when I started doing that, I was really shocked at how practical it could be to work within a venue or a festival because growing up, like, you know, as a child of immigrants, I had the typical thing of like, you know, focus on being like a doctor or a lawyer or something very, you know, stable like that. And I feel like growing up that way, it led, I had like this idea or perception that a lot of creative fields didn't have practicalities to it. I grow older and come to see, wow, there are a lot of practicalities in these creative spaces. And I feel like, well, not feel, I know that's definitely the case within film. And it's weird that we don't really get that insight until we're a little bit older. But I wonder if mm-hmm. that mindset shift and kind of awakening was something you also experienced. Yeah, I mean, I went to film school, I think, but it was very uh, academic and theoretical. Like, we watched a lot of movies and wrote a lot of papers, and that was valuable, I think, because we did learn a lot from studying films and, uh, you know, writing. But a lot of how the industry works, you know, you kind of... and I. You know, moving to New York instead of LA, I feel like I'm not, I'm still not even sure how the industry works. Like I'm just doing my thing on the side and, you know, creating alongside my day job. But yeah, uh, even my sister and I were talking about like, you know, it's like tax season right now. And it's like, no one really told us about writing off like everything you can as a business expense and, yeah, figuring out just like the best way to operate as uh, like whether you should be an LLC uh, how to file your taxes. Yeah, just all of that. I don't know. I think if I were ever to talk to like a bunch of students, though, that wanted to know about like writing or filmmaking, I would tell them that like, maybe 20% of it is writing your screenplay. And the other 80% is writing essays about your screenplay, if you would, you know, like to <laughs> pitch it to anybody else, because 
everybody wants a log line, like a summary, a cover letter, an artist statement. And if you can get those things together, it takes a lot of time, but then you can, you know, kind of copy paste your statements and send them out to people. But the pitch deck is as important, if not more than the screenplay, because people want visuals. They want to like, you know, you want to get their attention. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a lot more than just creating the product, especially, you know, if you're an indie person, like maybe there are screenwriters out there that just write the screenplay and have their manager do it or something. But if you want to operate as like a one man person, a lot of it is creating the materials around your product. <laughs> and I think something that's really interesting in how you describe that is I feel like only naturally, like I almost think about it with musicians, like when they release albums and they have all the like auxiliary components around the album release. I've, mm-hmm. I've sometimes noticed that musicians find that having all those different elements help them make sense of the project in a mm-hmm. more like streamlined and concrete way than they had prior. And I almost imagine with filmmaking, maybe that's the case as well when you have all these extra elements in concert as well. Yeah, I think that if you don't make yourself do it, like anybody who might want to either fund you or pick you up or help you will make you do it because film is so expensive that they don't really want to invest the money or time into somebody that doesn't have the vision. So you kind of do have to like spell it out. This is how I'm going to do it. Or you can do it a lot of the time. And sometimes you even have to like make a short film or you know, do principal photography. I mean, at the lowest end of it, it's like using reference photos from other films or or whatever for like the lighting you think that's going to happen and the characters and whatever. And then, you know, like Whiplash, I always reference this movie, he made a 20 minute short that like one Sundance or something and then got to make the, the feature. So you don't have to shoot it before you shoot it a lot of the time. It's actually interesting bring that up. My first job out of college was, um, because I studied graphic design, even though I eventually got into photography. My first job out of school was um, at a production studio doing, like, uh, designing the treatments. Like, Yeah, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember... Yeah, very good <laughs> skill to have. I remember sitting on a lot of those, like, pitch meetings. And this mm-hmm. was, like, uh, 2012 and in going into 2013. And, oh my god, I can't count the amount of times a week a different director would reference a uh, modern family as a oh, means wow. of an aesthetic yeah <laughs> yeah that, that must have been the hot thing back then yeah I what it is now yeah. Shit's creek or, <laughs> or something probably Shit's creek stranger things yeah it's funny you mentioned i'm just about to finish Shit's creek well i have another season to do i fucking love oh, that it's show. great oh it's so great <laughs> i am finished uh you know, another beautiful part of your career has been collaborating loads with your sister, Charlene, who is, mm-hmm. you know, also a friend of mine. And you've collaborated on these incredible music videos, especially around her album that she released last year. I feel like those videos, in essence, really did elevate the songs. Like, the songs are great on their own, but watching those videos really made you feel as though the songs were like these living entities. And when I watched those videos, and I know of, like, you know, how close you guys are in terms of working together, it just led me to wondering, like, what do you feel you've learned about your sister that you could have only learned from working with her? Hmm, that's a good question. I honestly feel like I'm constantly surprised by how good of a visual artist she is. Because, you know, I always knew she could draw and had great fashion sense and, you know, has been a visual person, but, you know, being a musician, it's all in the audio world. And I would almost, I, I used to think like, I'm the visual person in this, but then she started getting into graphic design 
and then, you know, who's been taking on clients for like posters and branding and all of these illustrations and all these things. And so what's really great about collaborating with her is that like she often has a concept or can consult on what the wardrobe is um, and she'll do you know the title design for the videos and so it truly is like a melding of ideas and but she's <laughs> I, it kind of reminds me of like what they say about Beyonce like she has control over <laughs> every element of the set and you know oh that's what I was gonna say like once again as the coach I feel like you come in with an already extremely talented person and you know support cheerlead put together like I know I like the technical things with film how a set runs like how we should shoot it to like organize it in the edit and make it fluid and and it's fun it's fun to just like be on set with a bunch of other artists but yeah I think people including myself would be surprised these days how much comes from her as she becomes like more confident in what her visual branding is and look is as an artist. No, it definitely shows. And I think that was like one of the really like great joys of like having her release that album last year. Cause like from knowing her for as long as I have, I've always seen her as confident, but the way she was in regards to releasing that album was just like totally next level to me. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I think it's definitely the best thing she's released so far because who knows what she'll release after this yeah exactly uh before i go into the next question um i want to tell people that they need to go onto your website and uh also check out your spoof videos because i have Ah, to tell you (laughs) the shape of you spoof video killed me so much it killed me i'm about to go hang out with uh the guy who plays ed sheeran right now actually oh are you (laughs) yeah Uh, that was a delight to do. Oh, uh, I, I, oh and Shar actually did the music for that. She like recorded the little steel drums and our friend Kiyoshi was the voice of Ed Sheeran and our friend Josh lip synced it. But uh, yeah, so much fun. That That <laughs> is just downright impressive. Um, <laughs> so, so my last question for you is naturally, I think, what's a film you've watched throughout the pandemic that you felt like swept you off your feet? Oh God, we already talked about so oh well I mean I've been trying to do my best with the Oscar noms so I'll say definitely uh watch Minari and then the sound of metal really yeah uh, gave me it was just beautiful I didn't even really hear about it until uh my fiance David was just like we're gonna put this on and you know like it starts out just being about a metal band and I was like what is this going to be like? And it turned into the most like beautifully artistic, poignant, just like, uh, it really gripped me. Yeah. I was really blown away by it. I really suggest everybody go watch it. I think, uh, or it's about uh, a drummer that like begins to lose his hearing. And so they took like six months to do the sound design on it. And I think they'd been planning it for like years, like 10 years or something. But it did strike me as a film that, outside of pandemic times like who knows if it would have gotten the attention that it did um because it is such a specific quiet film that depends like largely on like the levels of you know this guy's turmoil and his experience of losing music which is his love yeah it's the type of film that just makes you sit for an hour afterwards and be like wow that was that was great 
Oh man, I I know exactly what you mean. I'm a big fan of Riz Ahmed, and even mm-hmm. with that, like when I went into the film, I left the film going, "Wow, I didn't know he could act that way." And it's such a beautiful, mm-hmm. just a beautiful portrait of a person. Yeah. Yeah, for me, um, it was like there's two big films in particular that stick out to me, like older films. Like I say mm-hmm. older, but like more like from several years ago. For me, it was Blind Spotting with David Diggs and Rafael Cazal. I adore that movie so much oh i haven't seen that i'll have to i love w Diggs though i'm a big hamilton fan oh <laughs> yeah i i highly recommend that especially like um as an indie director because i think that one i'm pretty sure that one was made on quite a shoestring budget and oh, i right. yeah even for me as like a non-filmmaker i left the film feeling like wow i want to go make something oh great yeah i'll definitely check it out yeah and um i was also really struck by the farewell which i can't believe uh, it took me so long to watch but what an incredible movie yeah, uh, the farewell hits home for me because my mom wrote me this really long email after watching it. It's been really hard during this pandemic because she's been alone and hasn't really felt comfortable with us visiting because of COVID and flying and like all this stuff. And so she's been watching like, you know, some movies by herself and she watched The Farewell and she was really moved by it. I think being an immigrant that came to America and the culture of not telling anybody about you know their diagnosis which is what we did with her mom and she just like asked me all of these questions and it was really beautiful to see how it it opened her up to memories and experiences and uh once again seeing yourself depicted in a movie yourself and your culture and your family wow i mean that's really something else and it, it just goes back to like how powerful film is i mean one of the big reasons why i wanted to talk to you apart from this you know generally loving your work is I like I personally love film a lot and I think the really incredible thing about films is that they show you stories and sides of people that you wouldn't have point of context for seeing without that medium yeah absolutely I mean I I've been saying I feel like it's the key to plea ending racism and (laughs) empathy that and interracial relationships I guess like you know (laughs) uh, which is stepping into someone else's shoes and feeling their experience, which maybe you can only do in a couple different ways, like having a real conversation and listening, but falling in love with somebody, you feel what they're feeling, maybe having a kid and film, (laughs) film and music and art and, uh, you know, sharing and feeling an experience that somebody else's. Exactly. Leanne, this was so lovely. Thanks so much for chatting with me. I really had a great time talking to you. Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening.